So we're in Romans chapter 8 today, and uh, we are continuing. We're in the second week of a series uh, in what is my favorite chapter of the Bible. Uh, we talk, we're calling it Best Chapter Ever because that's just my opinion, and I get to title the sermon series around here. And so, uh, so that's what we're calling it. And this is week number two, and we're going to be talking about the topic of Spirit-Led Children of God. And I know that sounds like a kind of a mouthful, and I think it'll make sense this morning when we get into the text a little bit for you to understand what we're talking about because uh, we're really going to be focusing on this idea that as believers, we are the family of God, and um, that, that's, you know, who we are. Our our identity has shifted when um, we placed our faith in Christ and we're now in Christ. And so now we, we were once outsiders, outside the family of God. Uh, the Bible goes so far as to say that apart from Christ, we were children of the devil. That's pretty strong uh, language there. And that's Jesus's language and not mine, right? So I endorsed it just because it's Jesus's language. And so it, it, that's, that's how far lost we were, right? We were under the influence of Satan, carried away against God's will. And when we're reconciled to God through Christ Jesus, he brings us into the family. He makes us, he makes us family and makes us his. And that's, that's the label God puts on us. We're going to see in this passage this morning is that we are his children. The, the world wants to label you and me a number of ways. Yeah, the world wants to label us by um, our, our background, our past, uh, our income, our race, our ethnicity, uh, our political affiliation, um, certain viewpoints, conservative or liberals, myriad different ways the world wants to label you. And they're not even saying all those things are, are, are bad things. The point is your chief identity in Christ is that you are a child of God and that's a really big deal because that will your identity begins to inform your purpose and everything else about you so we need to know who we are because that informs what we're to do and how we're to behave and how we're to live and the purpose of our lives all this other stuff flows out of our identity and so here in Romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17 Paul really tells us something really important about our identity. It's not everything we need to know, but in Christ, it's something really important about what we need to know. So look with me at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful this morning for this text and what it tells us about who we are in Jesus and how you've brought us into the family of God and how if we are believers in Jesus Christ, your word tells us that we are children of God, sons of God, heirs of God, joint heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. And that is an incredible truth. And so, Lord, as we unpack this this morning and, and unpack this text, we pray that your Holy Spirit that you've given to us would enable us to understand it and to walk in the truth we hear. I pray for anybody here this morning that has never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, that today they'd be given that privilege through faith in Christ to be called children of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, when you look at this text, notice the identity markers in it. The language of family is all the way through there. Uh, the Bible, you might realize, if, you, if you're familiar with it, uses both the language of birth and adoption 
to explain how we come into the kingdom of God or how we come into the family of God. So, for instance, in G- Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born, of, born again. Uh, the, the Bible uses that language in 1 Peter and other places as well. Here in Romans and also in Galatians, it uses the language of adoption. It talks about the spirit of adoption, how we're adopted into the family of God. Here's the incredible thing about that. The family that you're a part of, no matter how you got there, birth, adoption, the word of God communicates how we get into the family of God in a way that you can understand it. Because we are born into the kingdom of God. And we are adopted into the family of God. Both those things are true and they reveal things uh, about what it means to be a part of the family of God. And so that no matter your personal experience, God communicates the truth of how to be in the family of God and, and his love towards you in a way that you can comprehend it. I've got some good friends back in Alabama, the Deerman family, um, several years ago, um, I guess it's been about four or five years ago now, they adopted a small child. They were, um, both of their children were teenagers at the time, and they just felt led of the Lord, impressed by the Holy Spirit to adopt, and in particular, uh, they sensed that God wanted them to adopt a special needs child, and so they began to pray about where, and so they, they prayed, and they really felt that they should adopt from Russia, and so they began the process of pursuing adoption in Russia, and then, I don't know if you remember several years ago, some doors closed to adoption in Russia, and that shut down the whole process for them, really discouraged them, and so they, they prayed some more, and, and they really sensed uh, God leading them to China, and so they began to pursue adoption in China, and so, and God led them to a particular little boy named, uh, that is, his name now is Frankie, and it, Frankie was about two or three at the time, and, and, and they went through this whole process where they had to go to Beijing, and they had all the paperwork, and all the different things, and the time that has to go by, and the cost that has to be paid, they ultimately bring... Frankie into their family in a way that was legal and all that and and come back here. Now he's got this whole family, a whole new reality and he is every bit as much a part of their family as the two teenagers at the time were uh, that was born into their family, right? He's every bit and it's like, man, it's like their family. It's hard to imagine that it ever existed without Frankie. And you think about that picture of it, and you, maybe you've adopted, or maybe you were adopted, or you know people who have adopted, and just that picture of what it looks like when that happens, when, when somebody is outside of the family, they're, they're not a part of the family, and then all of a sudden they're, they're sought out, and they're chosen, and then they're brought into the family, and made a part of the family, and, and there's, there's cost and expense and all that that goes into that. Well, that's what God has done for you in Christ, if you're a believer today. He has sought you out, he has chosen you, and he has paid the price, ultimately, through Jesus to make you his. Adoption gives us a richer picture of what it means to be a part of the family of God. And it's a powerful testimony when believers adopt. And so it it points to to how God brings us into his family. So we're called children of God because of this adoption, he says here in this text. He even says we're called sons of God. And you're like, well, I'm I'm a lady or I'm a girl. How can I be a son of God? The point there is the sons are the one who get the inheritance in their context. So the reason he says sons of God and he doesn't mention daughters of God primarily is simply this. The sons got the inheritance. And he's going to go on to say, not just sons, not just children, but heirs. It's the sons that get the inheritance. And so whether you're male or female, if you're in the family of God, you get the inheritance of a son in their context, in in that Jewish context. And so this inheritance, he says you're heirs, you get this inheritance. He says it's, it's from God. We're heirs of God. He even uses this phrase. I love this phrase. We're fellow heirs with Christ. Try that one on. So... 
For instance, if you were my heir, um, that would mean maybe one day you would get a, a really beat up old Chevy Trailblazer and a baseball card collection that's somewhere stashed away at my parents' house in North Alabama. Um, that's about all I've got to offer at this point. But if you're an heir of God, there's a lot more going on here. He's got a lot more to offer you in terms of an inheritance than what I have to offer. And that's the point here is that you're, it's not, you're not just an heir. You're an heir of God. The inheritance is coming from God. It has been said that our inheritance is actually God himself. God gives us himself. Not only that, we, the Bible also tells us we're going to get a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in weeks to come. Not only that, we get a new glorified body that doesn't get sick, that doesn't hurt, that doesn't get pain, that's not infected with sin, to enjoy God and worship God in this new heaven and new earth forever. That's our inheritance. God, with God, forever, enjoying God forever. New, new, new glorified body, new heaven, new earth. That's the ultimate, right, that we look forward to. Wow. And listen, that's a future that is certain for the child of God. Now you say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? How do you know it's certain? Here's how I know it's certain. Because he says you're a fellow heir with Christ. And Jesus isn't losing his inheritance anytime soon. My inheritance with God is tied to Christ's inheritance. And God's not going to abandon Jesus. God's not going to neglect Jesus. God's not going to pull Jesus' inheritance out from under. And it's all tied together, okay? So it, it, it's, it, I'm, it's with Christ. Your inheritance in Jesus uh, is as sure as Jesus' inheritance because Jesus shares his inheritance with you. And that's an incredible picture. And this is an identity-shifting truth is what we see in this text. My identity in Christ should inform how I relate to God, how I relate to the world, how I function. Because my identity begins to shape my purpose. Where I go, what I do, what my purpose is, what my mission in life is, all that is shaped by who I am, right? I've got three children and they're purpose and, and, and life and what they do and where they go, it's all informed by the fact that they're my kids. It, it influences their life. The fact that, that I'm their dad and Christy's their mom, uh, that influences a lot about them. The fact that they're in my family, that begins to shape their identity and it begins to shape a lot of things about their life because they're in our family. It, it, it really marks them. If you don't believe me, look at them. It's, they look a lot like me. <laughs> Especially the first two, the oldest. Just this week, I saw this viral clip that was going around, and it was of um, Anderson Cooper, who's a, uh, like a news guy on CNN or whatever, and, and, and Stephen Colbert, who's a comedian, has a late-night show. And the two of them were talking. It was this long interview, and the clip I saw was about they both lost their fathers when they were 10, and how both of their lives have been marked ever since by that moment. Anderson Cooper said, when he looks back at his life before he lost his father, he said, all those memories are kind of like looking at broken glass. Everything's just a little foggy and hard to see, but he clearly remembers that moment, and everything since then is marked by, by that moment. Why is that? Because, man, family shapes our identity. And things that happen in our family shape our identity. I mean, it informs our world. How much more so? To go from being outside the family of God, of coming into the family of God, should that shape and inform who we are, what we do, how we live our life, and our purpose in life. And so, let me show you four things that are true about us as God's children, right? As children and heirs, here are four things that are true about us that begin to inform our lives. And if you're a child of God, these things are true of you, all right? The first one is, number one, we are led by the Spirit, verse 14. We are led by the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Those who are led by the Spirit of God, right? Right? 
Paul says an identifying mark of the sons of God is this idea of being led by the Spirit. Now what does that mean, being led by the Spirit? Is that a mystical thing, right? A hunch, a feeling, right? <laughs> That's not what he's talking about here. It's, it's, it's not just a hunch or a feeling. No, what he's talking about is the Spirit of God leading you into the will of God so that you become more like Jesus. This is actually a prophecy from the Old Testament that was, true, that was going to come true in the New Testament. Let me read it to you. Old Testament says this, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 28. This is the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28. And I will give you, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It's on the screen for you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here it is, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, there's the key word, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and I'll to be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So that was a, a promise God gave his people in the Old Testament that we see fulfilled in Christ because Romans 8 tells us that when you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in your life. What is that? That's, that's this verse. He, he comes to reside in you and to cause you to walk in your statutes or as Paul says here in Romans, to lead you. Lead me where? Towards God's statutes. To obey God's word. You say, well, what do you mean by the will of God? Well, this is what I'm talking about. The revealed will of God. How God wants us to live. God's design for our lives. And the more we live like that, the more we look like Jesus to the world around us, the more we're becoming like Christ. And that is where God's spirit is leading us. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer said it this way. He called it the trajectory of the spirit. I like that. He, he's put us on a new trajectory. He's got us going a new direction. And we're being led that direction. And that direction is, that place is Christ's likeness. It's the will of God. And, and he is certain to get us there if you're in Christ. Now, a few weeks ago when we were on vacation, we were at this place that had a, I had a water slide. And I, I'm, I'm not a risk taker or anything like that. And this was a very tame water slide, so it was right up my alley. And they had designed it probably for like, to be the perfect water slide for like a 10-year-old. And it's also the perfect water slide for a very tame, mild-mannered 39-year-old man. Um, and so I enjoyed this water slide. So I get up there the first day, and we're going to go, me and Cannon, we're going to go down this water slide, right? And we get up there, and it's closed, and the water's turned off, right? And so I could have tried to go down the water slide without the water. It would have been a very painful, burning experience probably. And so I decided not to do it. So we go back. When the, when the water's on and so and the water man it is just gushing down that slide I'm talking it's, it's just and I'm like you know this is a pretty tame water slide no big deal it's just one of these little woo and, it, and you're done right three feet of water at the end and I notice there's a sign there as you get on the water slide and it says to go faster what do you think it's going to say lay down right? In other words, get more of your body in the water, right? Go faster, lay down, and you'll go faster. So I'm like, okay, I'll try that. And so I get in the water slide, and I get to go in, and you know, and you begin to realize, first of all, the water slide was a little longer than I thought the water slide was. Quite a few turns there. And the longer I laid down, they were right. The faster I went to the point that I thought I was going to come out of the water slide first time I went down. So I, you know what I did? I sat up, right? You know what happened? I slowed down, <laughs> And so I began to realize I could manipulate the speed to kind of be what I was comfortable with. The longer I laid down, faster I went. The more I stood up, slower I went. Now here's the deal. Either way, at the end of the water slide, here's what happened. You were going to end up in a pool of three foot water. And the water slide and the movement of the water was going to determine that. You, you weren't going to resist it to the point you, that, you could not, that you didn't get to the pool. And here's the deal. When we come into the family of God... God puts his spirit in us, and he begins to lead us. He is going to get you to Christ-likeness. If you're a child of God, he is getting you there. 
All right? Now, it's an uphill battle. It's not like a water slide. It's not easy. If you've been a Christian very long, you know we slide uphill, right? And the Spirit has to kind of carry us up the hill, right? But, but the, we can either choose, kind of like a cut on the water slide, to cooperate with what the Spirit of God is doing or to resist what the Spirit of God is doing. So, right, you can, kind of, man, you can bumble your way along, right, to Christ's likeness, or you can lean into what the Spirit's doing in your life. And that's why some people grow faster than others. That's why some people mature faster than others. That's why some people have been Christians for 10 years, but they're still in spiritual infancy. And some people have been Christians for two years, and they seem more mature. One's laying down on the water slide, and the other one's sitting up. You know what I'm saying? One's resisting the work of the Spirit and one's leaning into it. But either way, if you're a child of God, you are marked by being led by the Spirit. He is beginning to overtake your life to make you more like Jesus. But that's not the only way. We're also marked by we are killing our sin. That's the second thing. We are killing our sin. Look back up at verses 12 and 13. He says, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, live according to the flesh. What's that, what's that about? Well, he's transitioning here from what we looked at in verses uh, 1 through 11 last week. But one of the primary ways we're, we're led by the Spirit, right, is he leads us to embrace right God's command and reject sin, which means we need to reject the flesh. So we're not debtors to the flesh. In other words, we don't owe the flesh anything. We talked last week about how uh, the flesh represents kind of like that sinful, uh, sinful nature. But people also, some people believe that it really represents more or less kind of like the whole world system that's tainted by sin. Either way, all that would lead you towards sin and all that would lead you away from it, you're not a debtor to that. That old way of life. You're, you're, you don't owe that anything. You've been bought out of that. We don't owe that. And so he says, and he said, so we are to live according to the Spirit. But he says, if you live according to the flesh, verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And, and, and he, wages of sin is death. We read that in, in Romans 6, 23 weeks ago. Um, for the wages of sin is death. And, and he's talking about spiritual death, not just physical death. He's saying those whose lives are dominated by the, by, the, by the way of the flesh, the way of rebellion against God, those people ultimately are going to experience in, the, in, in eternity what they've, even a fuller version of what they're experiencing here, which is separation from God and ultimately judgment and condemnation for their sin. But he says, so if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, when you read that, you just take it out of context, and that's the only two verses I give you, you would probably walk away from that thinking, okay, so the key to the Christian life is this. If I sin, I go to hell. If I don't sin, I go to heaven. Sounds like works, right? Just pull it out. Don't look at any context. You live according to the flesh, you'll die. So if I do the sinful stuff, I die. I go to hell. But if by the Spirit I put to death the deeds of the body, I'll live. I go to heaven. Um, sounds like work salvation. No, 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 no. He's describing, remember, the sons of God. You got to look at verse 14. You got to look at verse 14. And when you look at verse 14, it helps us get the fuller picture. For because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. What's his point? His point is this. The, one of the primary ways the Spirit of God leads you is he leads you to kill sin. He's describing the sons of God. He's describing the children of God. He's not telling you, hey, to... to, to earn salvation, you've got to put away sin. No, he's telling you, he's describing for you what the children of God do. They hate sin. They go to war on their sin. The Spirit leads us and empowers us to what, as he says here, to put to death the deeds of the body. In the Greek, it literally means to execute or to kill. 
John Owen, the great Puritan writer, said this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And it's true. Because when we live in such a way that we find ourselves friendly towards sin, and we embrace sin, and we don't run from sin, and we like sin to the point of we would rather have sin than have Jesus, and rather have our way than his way, and th- there's a point at which it begins to show that you don't have the Spirit of God, which means you're not a child of God, which means you're not an heir of God. See, it, it's all connected The kingdom of God is marked by people who go to war on sin, who kill sin. Uh, The idea that we can make peace with God in our sin at the same time is is a falsehood. Peace with God means you will be at war with sin. The, The moment you made peace with God through Jesus, you declared war on sin. And the Spirit declares war on sin in your life. And we live in a world right now, we live in a culture where people claim to be Christian but fully embrace behaviors that God says is sinful. And we're seeing that in increasing measure. But God's standard hasn't, tra- it hasn't changed. And all this is usually done under the banner of the love of God. Right? God loves me, therefore. But listen, you can't, if you love God, you will hate sin. Right? And, you, and if we say, man, God's love it permits me to live how I want to, we don't understand love at all. That's not even how love works on our terms. Right? I love my kids. I don't just let them do whatever they want to. That would be foolish. That would be crazy. Because I love them, I protect them from certain things. I lead them away from certain things. I warn them about certain things. Right? Man, if we're children of God, uh, there's certain things that we're going to be at war with. See, you can't manage sin. You can't control sin. Sin is not meant to be managed. It's not meant to be kept under control. Sin has to be killed. And you have to get to the root issue. Because Jesus taught that sin comes from the heart, right? And so we have to get to the root issue, which is the heart, if we're going to kill our sin. It starts with heart transformation, and we have to, in our hearts, even if we're believers in Jesus, they're not perfect, right? Uh, They've been made new, but man, we we are still flawed, and so we have to constantly be doing that heart work and and going after our heart. I remember when we lived in Alabama, um, one day I got a call when I was at the church office from Christy, and we were we were newlyweds at the time. We'd been married maybe a, uh, maybe a year, and, and in our in our house there, she said we're, we're having we've got a wasp problem. I was like, oh no, like in the house or outside? She's like, no, they're in the house, Josh. They're everywhere. So when I get home, I come home, and I kid you not. She had killed like 40 or 50 wasps. It was like waspageddon. I mean, they were every, wasps were everywhere. She's like running around with a shoe. She's like smacking them out of the air and smacking them. I was kind of afraid of her after that. I mean, it was an intense violence towards those wasps. And we begin to look, and up high, and we had like these vaulted ceilings, there was this little hole in the sheetrock, way up high, I'm not even sure how I got there, and I discovered outside, under the little ease of the house, there was a nest, and they were finding their way through that, and through that sheetrock, and you could see them, you know, come in. And we didn't fix the wasp problem until we removed and destroyed the nest, Right? And we could swat the wasp all day long. And listen, there's a sense in which when sin comes into our life, we need to swat it and we need to resist it. And we need to, but we also have to slow down and ask the question of, why am I doing this? Why am I drawn towards this? And if it's something we continue to struggle with, why do I continue to struggle with this? What, what's going on in my heart? What am I longing for and desire? Because usually what's happening is we're, we're replacing something that should be only fulfilled in Jesus with something else, right? 
And so instead of getting our joy from Jesus, we're getting our joy from whatever. Instead of resting in Jesus, we're resting in whatever. Uh, whatever it may be, instead of our identity being found in Jesus, we're finding our identity in whatever. And so these sins come into our lives because we're not doing the heart work of examining our heart and bringing it in line with the word of God because we have to kill sin, he says, by the Spirit. The, the Spirit empowers this. Say, so how does he do that? Well, he uses the word of God and we believe the promises of God. And we get, that's why you got to get in the Bible. <laughs> he uses that. That's the sword, right? So the, the, uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So what's he going to stab and kill sin with? His weapon, which is his word. And so if, if we're not getting in the word, if we're not under the preaching of the word, if we're not bringing the word in and meditating on it, hiding it in our heart, as David said, I hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Uh, the word of God is a weapon against sin. And the people of God, right? Other spirit-empowered, spirit-filled people. We need the transparency, the accountability, the encouragement of other believers. By the spirit, we kill sin. But the main point I want you to see there is we have to be relentless towards sin. We kill it. Uh, there's no making peace with it. You have to have an attitude shift. It's not a little problem. It's not a quote-unquote mistake. Those are words we use to soften what it really is, which is wickedness and an affront to God. And until you call your sin what it is, you will continue to make nice with it. A mistake is something you're not too afraid to make again. It's sin. It's sin. Uh, you can make a mistake and not sin. But some mistakes are really sins, and they need to be called sins. And so the children of God are not friends to sin. We kill sin by the Spirit, and that means, that means listen, here's the good news. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, it means you can kill the sin that is in your life. There is no sin in your life today, believer, that by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit that you cannot put away. Amen? Number three, we have confidence in and we have confidence before God the Father. And this is really kind of the big home run takeaway from this passage that he wants to drive in. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. As Douglas Moo writes, the spirit that believers have received does not bring about again that anxiety and fear of judgment which they suffered in their pre-Christian state. Remember Romans 8.1? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That whole anxiety towards God, not, not the fear of reverential awe, but just that, that fear that he's going to condemn me. All that, that's removed. We don't, we don't serve God in that way. Not, not out of, man, I, I hope I don't go to hell. I hope I can appease his wrath. That's, that's not the motivation of the believer, he's saying. He says, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out to God, Abba, Father. So our relationship with God is shifted and it's one of adopted children and by the Spirit we cry out Abba Father showing our confidence in God and our confidence before God. Confidence in God in that we now relate to him as our Father. Not just because he says we can but the Spirit he says produces in us an inner desire to rely on God to call out to him Abba Father producing that cry. See, believers, God's children they call on God as Father. Not just as a word, but relationally, that's how we relate to him. We look to God to provide for us, to protect us, to lead and direct us. There, there, there's a heart desire in every believer in Christ to trust God, to love God, to run to God, to run to his arms. God's children know they need God. 
We know we can trust God. We, we cry out to him in confidence because he's our Abba Father. And that word Abba conveys intimacy. It was like in their language, it was like the way a child would call their father daddy. And the idea, he uses both words, right? Abba, Father. And he, the, the point is, yes, he's our father, but man, it's intimate. He's our, he's our dad. He's, he, we can call out to him with, with confidence and, and with intimacy. As, as Moo goes on to point out, this is how Jesus addressed God. And it was kind of revolutionary. In his day, when he comes along and says, I want you to address God with this intimate term. This word Father, this word Abba, same word Jesus used. As Moo writes, in adopting us, God has taken no half measures. We have been made full members of the family. We are to use the same term to address God the Father as Jesus used. And no one has a more intimate relationship with the Father than the Son, right? Than the Trinity, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have this confidence in God that he's our Father, but we have the confidence before him because he's our Father. We have the status of sonship conveyed to us. We are children. We, we know we are his children. We go before him with confidence of children. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So he said the spirit of God bears witness, or that word can mean testifies. He testifies that we are children of God. Testifies to who? To us, to our very spirit. Because God wants you to know you're his. He don't want you wondering. He doesn't want you doubting. He wants you to stand before him in confidence in your relationship. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He writes, this may speak of an immediate sense. It's verse 16, the bearing witness with our spirit. An immediate sense of God's presence and love that comes to us. He says it may not be something that we sense all the time. But there are times when we call out to the Father and that we are assured in our spirits that he is in fact our Father. These special times when the Spirit really conveys to us, yes, yes, he is your Father. Also, when, when you read the promises of God, when you read the Scriptures, it is the Spirit of God that will testify to your Spirit. That's true of you. So when you're like, man, am I a Christian? You read, wow, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the Spirit will work to confirm that to your heart and to your spirit. That, yes, that, that's true of you. He, he wants you to have assurance. The Spirit gives us confidence before God so that we can go humbly and boldly to God in prayer because he's our Father and we are his children. Listen, I've had various employers over the course of my 39 years and and I, I've never asked of employers what, I've asked, what I would ask of my parents when I was a kid. The relationship's different, right? Certain kinds of bosses, you're afraid to even ask for your time off. Maybe that you're even, you're, it's, like, it's kind of like intimidating. But I, all kinds of stuff I would ask my parents when I was a kid and ask them for that I would never ask an employer for. Relationship's different. My kids will ask me anything, Right? They'll ask me out for all kinds of crazy stuff. Stuff that there's no way I could ever give them. But they, 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 they'll, they'll, just, they'll just ask. There's just this weird confidence that they have before me. And we can have a confidence in and before God because, see, yes, he is our boss. He is our Lord. He is our king. He is all that. But he's more than that. He is not just your king. He is not just your boss. He is not just your Lord. He's your father if you're in Christ. And that radically changes how we see and relate to God. And it should fill us with confidence that God wants what's best for me. 
should fill us with confidence that I stand before God loved and accepted. And just as a child runs to a good father, if you had a bad relationship with father, your father, don't let that taint your view of God because God's everything a father's supposed to be. Always present, providing, protecting, involved, all the things that a good father would be. God is perfect in all those ways. And he fills us with this sense of knowing we belong to him and we can go to him with anything. And I love what John Popper said about this verse. He says, the spirit of God does not lead us. Remember we read that verse earlier about being, we're led by the son, we're the, the, the sons of God are led by the spirit of God. The spirit of God does not lead by stirring up a slavish fear, as Paul says. He leads by stirring up family affection. In other words, what, all this is linked together. The, the reason we pursue holiness and kill sin and pursue Christ's likeness, it's not out of this slavish fear of God's gonna get me. It's out of this deep love for God because we're in the family and we wanna carry the marks of the family and we wanna honor our father and we wanna love our father. It's out of relationship, a relationship shift that has happened. So do you have confidence in God? Do you run to God in faith? Do you have confidence before him that you are his and he's your loving father? You can, we should, as children of God. So we're led by the Spirit. We kill our sin. We have confidence in Him before God. And the last thing is this. The children of God, Spirit-led children of God, are willing to suffer with Christ. He says, he says all this, that we're heirs with Christ, joint heirs, fellow heirs, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified. We, in other words, we prove ourselves fellow heirs with Christ when we suffer with Christ. And notice the connection, suffering and then glory. Do you catch that? We suffer with him, and he's, he's setting us up for where we're going to be next week. We suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him. Look at the life of Jesus. He comes and many of his followers and many of the Jews of that day, they're going, glory, 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 glory. And Jesus knows, oh, no, I got to suffer first. Suffering and then glory. And it is no different for his followers. In this life, we suffer. Glory is to come. Primarily, I think he's speaking here to persecution. In context, I think that's the primary thing he's speaking to. And the animosity that sometimes comes in the world uh, when, you're a, when you're a believer. For your faith in Jesus. And, and this animosity or this persecution can come because of what you believe in the word of God. That you believe the word of God is true and there are certain things the word of God says that just naturally rubs up against the way of the world, the way of the flesh. And so when that happens, persecution can arise. I can't believe you believe that. You're so narrow-minded. You're so foolish. You're such a bigot, whatever it may be. Well, for what you believe, there's this animosity that can come. But it can also come because you live in accordance right? You live in such a way to honor Jesus and to live for Jesus. I can't believe that you do this. I can't believe that you don't do that. Or it can come just simply because you proclaim Jesus, proclaim the gospel. So it might be because of what you believe. It might be the way you live. It might be that you proclaim his word. Any of this can bring persecution. It's all connected to our relationship with Christ. Because if you're in Jesus, you're going to believe certain things and you're going to proclaim certain things and you're going to live a certain way as you're led by the Spirit. And in our culture, we do not see the persecution other parts of the world does. Thank God. But I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that certainly the temperature is changing. And it is heating up. And we may face more heated persecution in the years to come than we have in years past. 
History tells us God's children suffer in this life for following Jesus. And if we aren't willing to suffer with him when persecution comes, we show ourselves to be illegitimate children. Those who just say no to suffering, I just want glory, are not the children of God. We, we haven't, we're not willing to fully identify with Christ. And we're seeing it in our world now. More and more people falling away, running away. Many times because of what they're, oh, I'm cool with Jesus, but I'm not cool with what Jesus' word says. So I'm going to leave Jesus altogether because I can't, I can't line up with this. And so what is that? What, what's happening there? Whatever suffering that people foresee could happen, whatever pain that they could see coming in their life, whatever animosity that could come because of what they believe or should believe about the word of God is, is causing them to push away. And it's not gonna get better. It's probably gonna get worse. And more and more people may very well walk away from the faith because they don't want to take on the animosity and the suffering that sometimes comes from just believing what the Bible says. The children of God are willing to suffer with Christ. Willing to suffer with Christ. And the reason we're willing to suffer with Christ is because we know he's worth it. That's the work of the Spirit of God in your life, enabling you to suffer, giving you strength. And listen, we suffer in a myriad of ways too, by the way. The Bible speaks to trials. and The, the whole idea that, man, you become a believer, life's gonna get easier for you. Huh. Explain that to Paul. When is he getting his best life? You know what I'm saying? He got it way later, right? And so, man, sometimes suffering comes into your life because you believe. Sometimes life gets harder because you believe. Our lives are filled with trials and believers get sick and, and believers die and, and believers have hardship happen and believers have broken relationships that enter into the life. Believers encounter all sorts of things and in the midst of that, we cling to Jesus. And in the parable of the soils that Jesus told, those that spring up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but then fall away because of worldliness and suffering and all the different things that Jesus gives in examples, only show themselves to have not had good soil, a heart transformed by the Spirit of God. But believers, man, we know he's worth it. Not that we're perfect in this, okay? Not, that's not the point. We're talking about the ultimate of these things. But, but we know, we, we get that he's worth it because the spirit of God, it's kind of like this. Here we are, we've been on earth for however long now and women keep having babies. And from what I understand, because I've been there for three, that is a painful process. Um, but they keep having babies. And we keep, people keep just, you know, and some people actually have more than one, right? We've got three in our family. So it's, and, and it just keeps happening, right? The world just, and why is that? Because we believe it's worth it. <laughs> we get that a life comes. And, and, and we believe that child is worth it. We, be, we believe it's worth it. And so, and so people are willing to, to go through the, the pain and suffering sometimes that comes with childbirth and, and pregnancy. Because in the end, they believe it's, it's worth it. And on an even greater, grander scale, believers are willing. In some parts of the world, they suffer and they march to death simply because they believe Jesus is worth it. Nothing else explains it. Nothing else explains it. And that is a miracle of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father, that moves and works in our life and that empowers us. Now, think about this. How do we kill sin? 
How do we grow in our confidence in and before God so that we mature in that? How do we endure suffering when it does come? Whether it's suffering of sickness or trial or persecution? How do we lean into the leading of the Spirit so that we become more like Christ on that trajectory He has us on? How do we, how do, we do these things? Why, how does that happen in our life? Now, I'll give you an illustration. I, I saw this this week and I, I liked it. It's a simple illustration, but it helped me. And when you think about this, this little glass here, we've got a little water left in it. Um, right now, we think about it as being empty, right? But it's actually full. Full of what? Air. Yes, you're great. You're welcome to seventh grade science. And it's full of, it's full of air. And there's um, one way that we could get the air out of this glass is, is we could seal the glass off, right? Make it airtight. And then you have to do what? Right? You like create like a little vacuum and you put something in. You have to suck the air out. But you could do what? You could break the glass, right? So that would be a very complicated way to get the air out of the glass. The simplest way to get the air out of the glass is to fill the glass with something else. Now, I don't need any smart alecks telling me that water has a certain trace amount of oxygen in it. <laughs> it's very minimal. You get the point. The way... God gets sin out of our life. The way God helps us grow spiritually, the way God empowers us to, to suffer when we're called to suffer, well, he has put his spirit in you. He, he's filled you with something else, so to speak. But then the Bible says we need to, this is, we need to be filled, that's a command, be filled with the spirit. Not meaning that you need more of him, but you need to surrender more of your life to him so that he fills you up and then, man, the, the all this other stuff starts getting pressed out. And so the way, he says, how do, you, how do you kill sin? He says, by the Spirit. So as you yield your life over to the Spirit of God and, get on the, and lean into that trajectory that he has of obeying Christ and pursuing Christ's likeness, you begin to make war on your sin. And when you yield your life over to Christ and he fills you, he empowers you to even suffer whatever may come your way. See, positionally before God, we're children of God. And we're to be obedient children of God. But practically, the, w the way we live that out, the difference in our position and living that out practically is the spirit-filled life. It's yielding our life over to the spirit. How do I do that? Well, I mean, confess your sin, forsake your sin, and just simply ask. Ask and believe what God says. And walk in it. Walk in it. Repent of your sin. Ask the Spirit of God to fill you. And, and listen, the same fruit in Colossians and Ephesians when it compares the Spirit of God and the Word of God, when your life is filled with the Word and your life is filled with the Spirit, they produce the same fruit. And that is because, man, if you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you're also going to want to be filled with the truth of God. And when that happens, things begin to fall in place. We make war on sin, we're strengthened, we're growing, we're maturing, and it's working, it's yielding to the Holy Spirit and filling our lives up with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So let me ask you today, if you're not a child of God, if you are not led by the Spirit to kill sin, to become more like Jesus, if you have no confidence before God, no confidence in God, maybe, who wants to live that way? If you've got a nagging, constant doubt that you're not God's child, who wants to live that way?
Even today, God offers you sonship. He offers you to be a child. He offers you to be an heir. You simply need to repent and believe the gospel. That the reason you don't have to be condemned for your sin, the reason Romans 8, 1 can be true for you, that there's no condemnation, is because you're, for those who are in Christ. Because Christ took the condemnation you deserve. He took the judgment you deserve. He took the punishment you deserve on the cross to set you free from your sin. He has risen from the dead. And the, and the same spirit that was involved in that resurrection can reside in you and enable you to have the spiritual life and to live the spiritual life God wants you to live. You simply need to trust him. If you've never done that today, we always want to extend that invitation to you to do that. And as a child of God today, believer, if you do not have a deep sense of God's love for you today, if you don't have a deep passion to kill sin today in your life, could it be the Spirit of God has placed in you, that has, God has placed in you is being grieved in your life? That you're not cooperating with Him, that you're quenching the Spirit as the Word of God says, that you're resisting the Spirit of God as the Word of God says? And the truth is, if we're not seeking to align our lives with the revealed will of God in His Word, then we are resisting the work of the Spirit. So how could you today better yield your life over? Kind of like on that water slide. How can you better today yield your life over to the leading of the Spirit so that you mature and so that you can grow and so that you pursue Christ's likeness and live practically out in the world like what you are in Christ, a child of God? Let's pray.